This is the Engineering and Leadership Podcast with Pat Sweet, Episode 32. Welcome to the Engineering and Leadership Podcast, the show dedicated to helping engineers thrive. Today, I speak with Henrik Selstam, CTO of Wastefront, about his company and their mission to address one of the world's most pressing environmental challenges, dealing with end-of-life tires. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I, of course, am Pat Sweet, and I'm super, super happy to have you here today. And happy Father's Day. I realize it'll be after Father's Day by the time you hear this, but I'm recording on Father's Day. Uh, so to all the dads out there, have a lovely day, a lovely week. A little bit of housekeeping here, just a few things I wanted to mention. Uh, right off the top, I wanted to mention uh, a book called Seed, which is written by Matthew G. Dick. It's a, it's a, uh, a hard science fiction novel. Really, really good stuff. I interviewed Matthew back in episode 14, and you could you could check that out at engineeringandleadership.com slash episode 14 to listen into that. Anyway, Matthew reached out to let me know that there's a new audiobook version of his book, Seed, uh, which had been out for, for some time. Uh, so anyway, I just wanted to to give a plug for that. Do check that out. Uh, Matthew hired a professional voice actor and and, and really went uh, the whole nine yards, right? So uh, I really do want to promote him and his work. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that I'm planning on launching a monthly webinar in the next couple of months, and it would be great to hear uh, from you about the kinds of topics that you'd be interested in related to productivity, leadership, management, systems engineering, you name it. I definitely want to uh, to hear from you to make sure that whatever it is I'm putting on is actually of interest to you and actually helping you deal with uh, issues and and covering topics that you're interested in. So do drop me a line. All right, let's get to the main content for today. By some estimates, over 1.5 billion tires are discarded each year. They're notoriously difficult to recycle, and many end up in landfills, where they leach toxins into the soil and water. By almost any measure, this is a huge problem and growing. That's why Wastefront, a startup based in Norway, has been working to develop methods of recycling old tires to create products that can be used in new tire production, mechanical rubber goods, or as a filler for plastics. Today, I speak with Wastefront's CTO, Henrik Selstam, about his company and their mission to address one of the world's most pressing environmental challenges. Henrik Selstam is an engineering physicist and has more than 25 years of experience as either a founder, CEO, or managing director of numerous companies in IT, real estate, and waste. Henrik holds a master's degree in engineering physics from Chalmers University of Technology in Gothenburg, Sweden. Here's my conversation with Henrik. Mr. Henrik Selstam, thank you so much for joining me here on the Engineering and Leadership Podcast. Pleased to be here. Thank you. I'm very, very, very excited about that uh, because I, I think your your company, Wastefront, does is doing some really interesting work, so some really important work. Could you maybe set the scene a little bit and briefly explain what your company does? Yeah, uh, uh, we started out with the concept saying that uh, we have a lot of uh, electric cars and uh, same in the environment if it if it does actually 
but the wheels and all cars are still old used cars you know uh, wheels from uh, from a traditional way of doing it and uh, they end up in the landfills and i've been looking at landfills all over the world i know the reason and i know the purpose and we have a mission that we want to use them as a resource to create new tires or or maybe fuel or something that you can use in in a circular economy so we started out saying that let's do something with the tires and let's do it like the industry does but better and uh, that's our concept so uh, that's really interesting and, and i think probably something that a lot of people overlook is even even when the world moves to electric cars i, I think it's safe to say that that's a, a when as opposed to an if tires are still yeah. uh, a significant wear item that 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 will not be eliminated so so where did where did this inspiration come from in the first place how how, how did how did anyone come up with this idea well, it goes way back, actually, because uh, I've been very interested in uh, waste recycling and, and waste treatment and what we can do with waste. It's a resource in the wrong place, according to a Chinese proverb. I think it's very well defined. Uh, it's a resource, and why not use it? And uh, I've been looking at landfills in in all continents, uh, all, the, all over the world. I haven't been in Antarctic, but it looks the same everywhere and uh, all these tires are just piling up and if if someone set them on fire you cannot put it out you know it's it's a it's a huge problem and i happened to set a tire on fire when i was like 6 years old something like that i couldn't put it out and it was <laughs> very smoky and very stupid and it sort of burned in my mind that we got to do something about this because they burn tires everywhere Right. And uh, we have to do something useful with this resource. So, so on Wastefront's website, um, one of the things that that is is really uh, explained in detail is that the unsustainable handling of end of life tires is an underreported but major cause of pollution. To have you explain this, it, it it it's almost it almost goes without saying. Of course, of course, these tires have to go somewhere, uh, and of course. In many parts of the world, they end up in landfills. But but why is it why is it that this is underreported? Why why doesn't this get people's attention? Because I, I think we're talking about a a an enormous uh, waste stream here. What why yeah. isn't that? What why doesn't this capture people's attention? Very good question. Uh, I think it's a combination of uh, politics and economy. If we don't have a solution for something, or we think we don't have a solution, it's easier to uh, let them politicians decide what to do with the tires they should be collected but what happens after that no one knows mm-hmm. so it's not in my backyard sort of thinking and uh, they have come up with some ideas of using it for football fields or landscaping you know landscaping and it's not a good way of doing it because you have uh, you have the uh, chemicals and minerals in those uh, crumbs that will uh, sip, sip into the water and uh, you have a problem mm-hmm. so uh, uh, it's, it, they're trying to hide behind the problem and not finding a solution. There are always solutions. And you should always ask the engineers and you know, technicians what kind of solution would you prefer for this kind of thing. And we are talking about circular economies nowadays, and uh, there are ways to do that. But not many people know that. So I, this is something I want to get into, is, is this idea of, of circular economies. And I think... Uh, aside from what Wastefront is doing with tires, just, just the idea that it, it participates in a circular economy is, is super fascinating to me. 
But before we get to that, I, w- I wanted to talk a little bit more about you and your role with Wastefront. You're the CTO uh, of this company. W- what what does a day in the life of a CTO at Wastefront look like? Uh, not one day is not the other one. Like I mean, <laughs> right. it's it's always you know, different things, and it's everything from deep diving into uh, science and you know, rep- reports and articles into uh, going to the storage and uh, pick up a sample from the carbon black that we have produced to uh, send it for analysis. So it's a combination of all sorts of things. And we have, as you know, uh, these meetings on Teams or Zoom or whatever uh, goes on three, four times a day. So we we are in constant contact uh, with each other. And uh, the the, uh, approach we have, and that is to find the right people for the right task and uh, that means that we have, it's a Norwegian company. We will set up a plant in the UK. I'm in Sweden and we are working together product, product organization in, in, the, in the US. So we work most of the day uh, from early morning till late day because uh, different time zones. And we are very synchronized. And uh, I'm a great believer in putting a good team together and let them work uh, to their ability. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. And I, I think it's a great example of this this globalization of business. And and, and one of the things that, and I, I got to be very careful about how I phrase this, one of the things that we have learned through the course of the pandemic is is you really can work with folks all over the world, no matter where you are. It's, it's really forced that issue. Um, otherwise, we've been you know, spent the last year and a half sitting on our hands, <laughs> which is yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> luckily for us, we've not had to. Um, what would you say are your most pressing challenges right now as a CTO of a startup? What What are the things that that uh, you're really uh, working hard on these days? I would say uh, <clears throat> would be to um, fine tune the solutions we have, because the approach we have taken is that we use existing equipment from uh, you know existing manufacturers. Uh, and picking the right equipment from anywhere in the world, put them together into one uh, sort of a known uh, technology. And it's it's not really rocket science. We are using you know, exactly what everyone else is using, but we will add on a few things on top of that. So we have uh, the, if you want, if you want the investors interested, they don't want risk. Mm. So we have chosen uh, uh, commercial equipment to do this. And we will make it very consistent. That's the, the that's the trick of this, because uh, one of the products is carbon black that is used in plastics and and tires, new tires, to uh, strengthen them, and uh, and also for plastic to keep it resistant from UV light and all that. Uh, so uh, we will we will improve that technology and make it uh, consistent, because it's been a, con- a constant problem for all the all the carbon black re- recovered carbon black manufacturers that the quality is very different from one one day to another mm-hmm. and you cannot trust that product if it's not consistent quality so we are focusing on quality and improving the uh, how much of the uh, uh, how much of the material we can recover right right that that makes sense and and, and that's an interesting challenge is to do something new Right to really bring some some new value to the world, while at the same time convincing folks that uh, it can be done at low risk. Right, using using commercial equipment and 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 really making it work. That that's a that's a fascinating challenge. And I think yes. I think 
what you describe here is probably a, a common challenge for for a lot of startups, right? To do well, something yeah. different while at the same time not, you know, uh, putting putting your neck on the line, <laughs> doing something so wild exactly. that no one believes it can work. Yeah. And uh, since we, we did find the right solution from the beginning, we had uh, people at Vitol listening to us and said that if you do it like this, then we will be able to buy your product. So we listened to uh, uh, the professionals in their business and applied this according to what the end user wants or, or the trader wants. And, uh, and then we listened to them when we were choosing the organization for development of the project. And we used Devaltech, a very, very professional, extremely uh, knowledgeable company. Uh, they had all the skills we needed to put this together very quickly. And that, that, can, that gives a comfort for the investor by using uh, tra uh, traditional technology and experienced staff for this. So this is something that I, I wasn't expecting to to talk about here, but but uh, I think is really interesting is the the emphasis you're putting on uh, how important it was to listen to the end user and understand exactly what they needed as an end product. And I think a lot a lot of us as as technical people as technical experts have a hard time with that at times. We we come up with brilliant ideas, quote unquote. We get struck with inspiration, but but a good idea without an end customer is is an interesting puzzle at best, right? It's yeah. it's not yeah. going to make a product. What, Spot on. what what was it that that I assume there was an experience maybe earlier in in your career or or maybe a venture that that didn't go well that that emphasized that lesson or really uh, made that made that a priority for you. Was was there some something there for you that uh, that drove that? Yeah, uh, that's that's interesting reflection because <clears throat> previously I was involved in uh, translation. Uh, I'm not a translator myself, but I'm you know a scientist and programmer. And we set up a, a translation network for Volvo, and uh, and, and I developed uh, quality assurance software for that to make sure that the text would you know actually end up in their uh, framework. Um, and uh, one one instance, we had a question from uh, Volvo that we have this display and we can we can show Korean characters in this display in a certain way. Do you think it's good enough? And I looked at it and I said, well, given my experience, I don't think the end user will be happy with this because uh, the uh, Korean uh, ideographs are very close to connected with their you know, history. And, uh, you know, there was, a, there was a king who said that 1450 or something, that this is the language, this is our identity, and don't mess with it. Wow. So they stepped wow. away from Chinese. And... Right, right, rightfully so. Uh, we, they sent the text material to to Korea for you know get some experience from the clients and said, "Oh, looks cute. Looks like a poem. We don't like it." <laughs> <laughs> so, so I have a lot of experience from adapting to different kind of languages and traditions, and uh, and we had a, uh, our translation network became the, the largest in the world. So we we delivered more languages and more words than anyone else and so we were very successful and the lesson i learned from that is quality assurance and make sure that the end user likes your product and we have the same here yeah that's brilliant i, I that's a really fun fun story i i appreciate that thank you um i wanted to shift gears a little bit and and chat about 
um, uh, circular economy. This is something that came up earlier in our chat and I think is is central to uh, the way Wastefront operates. Could you explain what a circular economy is in, in broad terms and, and how Wastefront is participating in a circular economy? Sure. Uh, uh, the broad concept is we used to have a linear economy. You uh, take and you make and you throw it away, chuck it afterwards straight into the ground usually. Uh, it used to be like that. And sometimes they burn, but burnt instead. That is, uh, that's, uh, that's the wrong way of doing things to be very uh, moderate. I mean, uh, we should use whatever resources we have in as good as possible and reuse and, and reform and, and recover whatever we can. Because uh, if profitability is the only goal you have with the company, it's very easy to do whatever you want to do to get to, into that profitability. We only measure, then you only measure the profitability of the company when you sell your products. You don't measure what you, what you cause on the way to the end result. So in a circular economy, you make sure that uh, you reuse and recycle whatever uh, you're using in the production, even building the plants. So uh, a good example is the plant we are planning to build in the UK. Uh, it, it will last about 30 years, uh, probably. So we made a life cycle analysis. What does this consume in uh, transport and building material? Concrete uh, has a huge footprint on carbon dioxide. So uh, we made an analysis and looked into 30-year production. Uh, it, it will mean that we will save 1.8 million tons of carbon dioxide during its lifetime, 60,000 tons a year. And just because we are recycling and putting the carbon back into the end product. So a circular economy is that make sure that whatever you have the input should be used as an output. And the input is that you use from waste, then you have a circular economy. You can actually make sure that you utilize the resources in the best manner. See, that makes a lot of sense. I, I'm, I'm a, a systems engineer by training. And one of the things that uh, we do in systems engineering um, particularly with respect to things like cost analysis, is we evaluate full life cycle uh, yeah. from you know, from cradle to grave, so to speak. Yeah. And and what you're arguing here is grave shouldn't just be that endpoint, but <laughs> which which I, I think is 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 brilliant. Um, how how difficult is it to um, to keep investors happy in a startup when you're using non financial metrics to make uh, investment decisions, right? You, you, you've got this factory and you're saying, well, we've got to think more about more than the capital cost up front. That can't be the end of the decision. But, you know, for, for any startup, the cash you have on hand has to be treated with the utmost respect, <laughs> right? You don't, you don't have a runway forever. How do you, how do you balance the, those competing interests in, in, in the now? Well, uh, I think the <clears throat> the uh, carbon dioxide economy that we are you get uh, you get uh, uh, money back, so to speak, if you capture the carbon. Uh, that has helped a lot with the uh, you know you get so and so much for each ton of carbon dioxide you you save, and that has made a lot of difference. Uh, and it makes the companies uh, focus on this one because it's it's a good uh, good PR if they treat this in the right way. So that's a good start. But if, for in, in our case, we are looking at the carbon dioxide, of course, but I also look at uh, uh, sulfur and how sulfur will be 
distributed into the different products and is it of use then it should be in the, in the end product if it's not then we should collect it in in a way that we will desulfur size or desulfur the uh, fuels in the best way uh, that's beside the economy because there, no one is is giving us anything for that more than a uh, clap on the shoulder or right, whatever right, right, but, right. but it's uh, it's the it's the right thing to do it's a philosophy that we we would try to do the utmost to uh, to be as kind to the nature as possible to be to put it naively. Right, it's just the right thing to do. Yeah, it's the right thing to do. And uh, if you speak to a technician, there's, there are there are no problems. It's just something that has to be solved usually. So if you put the engineers to something, it could be solved usually, uh, or most of the, most of the cases. But if you if you don't give this tool to the politicians or the, uh, the investors or you know the people who make the decisions, uh, the, how you describe the law, uh, what you can do and what you can't do, mm-hmm. if you don't give them these tools, uh, then of course there would be mistakes. Yeah, of course, of course, that that that, that makes perfect sense. Um, I wanted to chat a little bit. Uh, we, we, we've touched on circular economy, um, and we've talked about the way the way. Uh, Wastefront looks at circular economies and, and the importance of making decisions based on full life cycle. But at, at some point, you need to to rope in partners generally for 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 a circular economy to work. And, and you've mentioned partnerships uh, already in this chat. How hard has it been for Wastefront to find other industrial partners to to work with and and, and play ball, so to speak? Because there, there's an awful lot of coordination and back and forth. I assume. To, to make something like this work and be sustainable in the long run. How, how have you and how has Wastefront approached bringing partners in? Yes, it's actually been easier than I anticipated. Huh. Uh, I thought it would be difficult. Uh, let's, let's take an example. Uh, we would produce carbon black. Uh, it's a fine powder used in many ap- applications, in tires, in plastic, and in, uh, in payments, for instance. Uh, and... Uh, the, the, the problem we had was that, well, once you produce your carbon black, we will test it and see if it fits. And if it doesn't, we will, you know, we will not use it. And uh, okay, for how long will you like to try uh, these trials or testing? Or if you talk to the big uh, tire manufacturers, they have one or two years of testing of your product. Mm-hmm. And if we cannot uh, start up our plants uh, 2024 commercially, and produce 22,000 ton a year of carbon black and wait uh, for them to decide if they want to use it. Yeah, so, of course. So the trick has been to find these uh, potential uh, off-takers and, and uh, start up before we have the plant with a similar equipment using uh, the same equipment in other places and produce with UK tires uh, what we assume will be the end products uh, given all these different circumstances and supply them with this. So we do the testing before we actually start producing. That has been a challenge. But we do need uh, an off-taker that says that we want this or that, or we want that quality, or we prefer this, and you get better paid if you do this before we make the final adjustments uh, in how the plant should work. Yeah, and and, and that sounds like uh, the kind of the kind of struggle that any any startup would have, particularly uh, B two B organizations, you've got to find yeah. someone who's willing to jump on board with you, right? Yeah, I can only I can only imagine that that 
your company's sense of mission plays a role in that. But but and and, and this is something I I imagine plays a role internally too, right? That you've got this really strong sense of we're we're here to do something good, something important. Um, ha- has that played a role with respect to uh, finding partners and finding folks to to jump on board with you? And and I I, I guess I'd have the same question about internal uh, I- internal culture as well. I, I can mm. only imagine that this is this this is a big deal. Mm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's it's part of our mission, and we have some uh, bad experiences from before uh, where did, this didn't work out. We didn't uh, get the work the team to work well together and uh, we had different visions and missions in in, in the management and uh, if that happens you don't like to go to work for instance and you don't sleep well at night Uh, nowadays i mean it's fantastic we have a fantastic team with a very good team spirit a lot of knowledge Uh, so it's always fun to discuss um, problems or issues uh, because everyone will con- contribute and uh, of course the end end product is something that we we are proud of and we sleep well at night right of course so it's so it does make it does make a difference with what kind of team you choose to use and uh, and your approach and the, the philosophy one of the things that uh, I, I read a recent interview that uh, that you gave last month and and you were asked about um things you wished you someone had told you before you started and and one of the things you mentioned, which I thought was was really interesting, was um, to adjust your perception of success. You said not every startup will become a unicorn, but that doesn't mean you won't make an enormous impact on the world. What does success look like for you, but both personally and and for Wastefront as a whole? Yeah, it's a it's a difficult uh, subject because most people measure success in how wealthy they get, mm. and. Uh, if you if you if you stick to that philosophy, most people will be uh, unhappy. You have to uh, set the goal where you want to go and and believe in it. No matter if if it time, times get really tough, uh, I had times just ten years ago uh, that it was really uh, challenging, not even being able to fill up the car with with, with gas because it was that close to breakdown. And and but I still believed in that we this would be possible to do and uh, never gave up on that idea and uh, eventually you get there and you have to believe in it enough and you have to put anything everything on on stake basically otherwise it won't be uh, uh, close to your heart well absolutely absolutely you, you you need to be going for more than a certain number in the bank account right yeah uh, because that, yeah. that can you know that uh, life can change in an instant Right. Yes, and and exactly. the number of dollars you have there doesn't <laughs> just won't matter very much, will it? <laughs> yeah, that's true. And and once you make uh, uh, some uh, some money out of it, out of it, uh, how do you use it? Uh, will you use it responsibly to uh, make something even better the next time, or if you, it will you just use it for consumption or whatever? Uh, that's also uh, worth mentioning. That uh, use your resources responsibly. Money is also. It's a resource. Yeah, of course. Of course. Absolutely. Yes. Um, uh, Henrik, this, this has been an awful lot of fun. Just to, uh, to, to close things out here, I'd love to know what, what's next for you and what's next for Wastefront? Uh, Wastefront is uh, pretty linear. We will, of course, improve our products, but uh, we plan to have another, yet another plant in the UK. 
before we uh, we uh, challenge the U.S. market. So we have plans to enter the U.S. market, and then of course several other projects on on the go. So we have set up the plan with milestones, and we are meeting every milestone thanks to our product development team. Uh, so it's pretty linear. We will we will expand and become the largest producer of uh, carbon black re- recovered carbon black and end of life tire fuels. Uh, that's that's pretty straightforward. Uh, for me, I would like to contribute as, as much as I can. And if if it becomes too challenging, uh, I'm willing to step down and give this to uh, one of the from the younger generation. Uh, with the cap- capabilities to take us, take this even further, so we're just on this train for a while and make the best of it, out of it. That's great. Thank you so very much, uh, Henrik. If people would like to learn more about you or your company, what's the best place for them to go to? The easiest way is to go into wastefronts.com and uh, going through the links. There are a lot of information, and there's a it's quite funny movie in there. Yeah, if you if you want to look. <laughs> very good. Very good. Uh, uh, Henrik Selstam, thank you so very much for being here with me today. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Pat. It's been a pleasure. Take care. You too. Thank you once again, Henrik, for your thoughts, your insights. There's a lot of really good stuff to come out of that conversation. And a few things stood out to me in particular. One was the importance of end-user consultation. This is really important uh, for any project, any company, any startup to really understand the the needs and desires of the people that you're trying to serve. When it comes to something like recycling old tires, there are any number of directions you could go with it. And I really appreciated uh, the the value and importance that Henrik placed on uh, actually consulting with the people who would be downstream, uh, actually receiving and using their products. And this is a lesson I think we can all learn no matter what we're doing, whether or not we're designing a new product, a new process, some sort of system, you name it, engaging with the people who are actually going to interact with your end product is hugely important. So I really appreciated him uh, digging into that. Another thing that Henrik really dug into was, was his focus on mission and in particular his belief in it. And he mentioned here that story about 10 years ago having some difficulty even finding the money to put gas in the tank of his car. I, I, I thought that was really quite inspiring, actually, that uh, for Henrik, this idea and and the importance he places on the mission of the organization was so important that it was worth going through those hardships. And obviously, today, life is very good for Henrik, and Wastefront is doing very well and promises to do really big things. So... Again, if if you within yourself can see that much value and place that much importance on what it is you're doing at work, that's a really good sign. That's a really good sign. And it means you're going to be able to push through the hard times. And with anything important, anything worthwhile, there will be hard times. Uh, so I thought that was a, a really important lesson learned as well. And related to that, uh, at the very end of the interview, I, I asked Henrik about what was next for him, what was next for the company. And one of the things that he mentioned, which I thought was a little bit surprising, was his willingness to hand the reins over to the next generation in the name of making making it happen, achieving the mission. And I thought there was a, a special kind of selflessness in that. We already talked about how important this mission was to Henrik specifically, but it, for him, it goes beyond 
his personal involvement in the achievement of the mission. The mission itself is what's important, and and he really does feel that if if there comes a point where it, he's not the best person to uh, to carry things forward, that he wants to pass the baton to the next generation. And I think that's that's brilliant. That dedication to the service of the mission uh, over himself, and I think we can all learn a thing or two about that. If you wanted to investigate any of the resources or links we mentioned during the show, just go to the show notes at engineeringandleadership.com slash episode 32. Up next, we've got the Engineering and Leadership Mailbag. Well, my friends, you know how this works. This is the part of the show where I read your messages and answer your questions. I promise to read absolutely everything you send me, and I promise to read my favorites here on the podcast. I got a note from Chris McCauley over LinkedIn who said, Hey, Pat, just thought I would send you a quick note. Since we connected on LinkedIn, I noticed your podcast and have been spending some time with it over the last couple of weeks. It's a really good podcast. I'm glad I found it. Just listened to the episode with Ben Ritter, and a lot of the things he talked about really resonated with me. So thanks. So thank you, Chris. I'm really, really glad to have you uh, have you as a fan of the show and and couldn't agree more. There's a lot that that Ben had to share that was uh, was a lot of fun, was really interesting, really practical. So I do recommend people go back and check that out. That was episode 30 with Dr. Ben Ritter on self-leadership. So really, really good material there. Next, Rob LeBlanc, who's a, a, a great friend of mine, so it was great to get a message from Rob. Uh, he commented on the latest podcast and said, really think hard about the value creation of blue work and red work and take a deeper think of how does remote working affect these working styles. And I thought that was a really great point is it, it could be uh, difficult at the best of times to organize work remotely and understand what kind of mode your your people are in. And if you listen to the last episode, episode 31 with David Marquet, we talk a lot about red work and blue work. Red work being kind of the heads down, get things done phase and blue work being the the thinking, planning, analyzing phase and, and the importance of really separating those two and allowing yourself to really truly be in one mode or another. When people are working remotely, it can be uh, e- even more difficult to understand as as someone on a team what mode you're in, what mode you should be in, and as a leader to communicate permission to be in one mode or another. So I really appreciated that insight from Rob. I think that's that's really important, particularly as we move into remote work. One of the episodes I've got coming up, I've already recorded the interview is all about remote work and some of the challenges associated with that. So do stay tuned for that. Finally, there was a note from uh, David Inman, who also commented on the last podcast, who said, great conversation, topics like these, get the mind to expand and help others understand group dynamics and how to communicate effectively without being coercive. I'm definitely going to have to pick up this book by David Marquet and give it a read. Thank you very much, David. Uh, that book, of course, is Leadership is Language from David Marquet. And one of the big uh, lessons learned from that book and one of the things we talked about during that conversation was about how the language we use as leaders is really borrowed from the Industrial Revolution. It's it's a very old way of thinking about the relationship between the leaders and their teams. And essentially, a lot of the language we use is coercive. It's 
It's about the leader trying to get the team to do what the leader wants done, as opposed to really truly collaborating with the team and moving toward a, a common goal together. And Marquet really boils this down to the language we use. And whether we intend to or not, we're essentially trying to coerce our team into action. And the, the whole book is about a better way of approaching things, a more efficient, a more effective, more human way of interacting. So, David Inman, thank you very much for the note. I really hope you enjoyed the book. Uh, again, that last episode was episode 31, and you can learn everything you need to know about that by going to engineeringandleadership.com slash episode 31. That is all the time we have for the show today. I'll be back next week with our next episode with Neil Thompson from Teach the Geek on the importance of public speaking for engineers and how to improve as a public speaker. If you enjoyed the show, please leave an honest review and let me know what you thought was most interesting from today's episode. This will help me make the show better and help others find it as well. And finally, for more information and links to the resources mentioned today, just go to the show notes at engineeringandleadership.com slash episode 32. Until next time, this is Pat Sweet reminding you that if you're going to be anything, be excellent. You've been listening to the Engineering and Leadership Podcast with Pat Sweet. If you'd like to learn more, go to engineeringandleadership.com where you'll find more free articles, podcasts, and downloads to help engineers thrive. That's engineeringandleadership.com.